I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. Michael Shaban, in The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, told us to forget about what you were escaping from. Reserve your anxiety for what you were escaping to. Just as Americans have been trying to shake a virus and escape from where they've cloistered, they've emerged into curfews and violent demonstrations. Peaceful protests over the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis give way to mayhem, looting, and unrest that disrupt efforts by stores to reopen at long last as lockdowns ease. Patrick Gurley joins us from the University of New Haven, where he's a professor of economics. Talk about this intersection of, of protest and pandemic and what it means for the economy going forward. Yeah, so I'm not really super concerned with the additional impacts of the protests, just because there's always been protests. And at least in my part of the country, in Connecticut, these stores weren't doing a lot of business to begin with. Um, Grand New Haven had a relatively small and peaceful protest. I think the biggest concern and what I'm kind of keeping trying to keep an eye on is how many businesses right now are temporarily closed versus actually gone and out of business. Because sooner or later, the economy is going to open back up, whether we're wearing masks or not, or there's you know some restrictions, you're going to be able to go into stores again. And so for every additional week that people can't do that, more and more businesses are going to go bankrupt. And for every business that goes bankrupt, well, those employees then can't go back to work once they're allowed to via the CDC or state's guidelines. So the bigger concern, especially for retail, would be the pandemic as opposed to the protests, which is causing already closed stores to board up their windows. Yeah, temporary closures, while they're not great, are not near as bad as, you know, a bankruptcy. Because one of the biggest things that causes unemployment is what's called frictional unemployment. And that's just the amount of time that takes workers to find jobs. Well, if workers can go back to the business they were working at in February, then there isn't really much frictional uh, unemployment. But if the business is gone, well, that means every one of those workers has to seek out a new job with a new company. And that matching process can take weeks, months. And what are we coming back to? I think one of the big changes is both the protests and the pandemic are going to accelerate the trend away from brick and mortar shops and towards online retailing. There are a lot of people that hadn't really tried online e-commerce that much, especially people in the older generations, and they were forced to because of the pandemic, and now they're being forced to if they live in urban areas because of you know safety issues going to downtown areas. And so the question is, are they going to go back once a lot of Americans that hadn't been online buyers have now gotten used to it over the last few months? Are they going to immediately go back to Main Street? Or are they going to stay on Amazon? Patrick Gurley at the University of New Haven. So that's where we're headed. First, we have to get through tonight. So I want to bring into the conversation ABC News contributor Don Mahalik, formerly of the Secret Service. You're also a former police officer. There seems to be a clear distinction being made now between protester and vandal or outright criminal. How do police adjust to get through another night of this? That's a great question, Aaron. But the most important thing, I think, is just what you said, is there needs to be a a clear distinguishment between the protesters who have every right to be protesting what happened to George Floyd and demanding justice and reforms. And 100%, I think the entire nation is behind them. But the, the, the radical extremists that are out rioting, looting, and causing uh, mayhem that are coming out at night, if there are peaceful individuals within those groups, it's probably incumbent upon them at this point to let law enforcement know 
who's there to peacefully protest and who is not. And I think that's a step, uh, a housekeeping step that a lot of these protest groups should start employing. What about behind the scenes for police? Can they use technology the way some of the, the agitators seem to be in coordinating with one another? Can they get at that organization? Law enforcement across the spectrum is looking at and examining social media feeds. They're looking at video feeds. They're uh, collecting evidence from across the country because, as we've seen, there's violence breaking out in cities across the country that at some point on justice should be served against those that perpetrated the violence. So law enforcement across the spectrum is looking at this coordination. I believe the FBI is trying to dive into this coordination. And at some point in time, they're going to have to figure out where the money comes from, which is another factor that helps the agitators do what they do, because it's interesting how they're able to get places so quickly, so well coordinated. Some of that has to do with uh, a financial backing. ABC News contributor Don Mahalik. All of this takes a toll on our emotional health. Dr. K. Luan Fan joins us from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. The country is already fragile from months of working from home or just social isolation. Absolutely. You know, I sort of think of it as, as a series of waves of stressors uh, that impacts all of us. You know, at first it was the infection. Uh, then the second wave was um, the social distancing and the physical distancing. And then as we were anticipating a return to somewhat of a new normal, uh, you know, the events um, of, of the last uh, week hit us. And uh, regardless of, of what your personal opinion is, when you see things on TV and you see things manifest out, you're going to empathize with some piece of, of, of that scene, right? You, you're going you're gonna to either worry about the peaceful protesters or you're going to worry about that business owner uh, or that home uh, that might be affected by, by the protests, uh, or you're going to be worried about the police officer. Um, so I don't think it matters really uh, who you are in a society uh, as you witness things happening, you're going to be affected by it. How then do we take care of ourselves and, and our emotional well-being if we are effectively cut off from the, the normal social interactions that we rely on for stability? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think it's, it's, um, it's first, um, it's important to realize that we're not alone. That's often the first thought that we are alone. But I, I think that in general, uh, we do have other sources to lean on. I think it's really important to begin to validate each other's feelings and emotions around this time. There, there's a catchy phrase uh, that's going that, that, that's making its way around, which is, it's okay not to feel okay. Uh, and and, and that's, that's really important, regardless of whether you're thinking about the infection, returning to work, uh, or now uh, what's going on, racism, br- br- police reta- uh, brutality, and, uh, and how do we go about healing our, our country and getting back together. So I think it's important to acknowledge those emotions, get a sense of control of what we can control. We, we, we as individuals, we as family units, we as friend circles can't solve all of those problems. We can't overcome all of those waves, but there's maybe one little thing that we can do to be really helpful. Uh, when the infection was hitting, some people just went to their sewing machines and made masks to donate. When we were returning back to work, a lot of people called their coworkers and say, hey, what are you worried about? This is what I'm worried about. This is what we should do when we get back on Monday. What do you think? You know, how do we 
uh, reset up the workplace. So feelings of control and some actions. What we have throughout this entire period as a bystander, as, a, as just a citizen, is absolute uncertainty and unpredictability and at the most recent form, ambiguity. When there is not an ability to get information from the people around us, we just become more and more distrustful. Take care of one another as best we can. Dr. Kaluan Fon from Columbus, Ohio. There is something remarkable occurring at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York. We know by now that health workers have been applauded by the public each evening in New York City at 7 p.m. At Lenox Hill Hospital, those same health care workers will kneel in support of what they're calling Blackout Tuesday. You clap for us, we kneel for you. Dr. John Brockvar is in the emergency room at Lenox Hill and joins us now. How'd this come about? We feel and we felt as a healthcare community um, that obviously we have a very, very diverse and empathetic and environment that whose goal is to protect all lives and that we have an obligation to protect all lives and to speak out and use our platform to protect all lives and black lives matter. And this is our, since we cannot protest essentially, um, as we're needed still on the front lines, we decided to do something uh, to speak out and, and in our way show our support Dr. John Brockbar in the emergency room at Lenox Hill Hospital. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thank you, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, we have been talking now for weeks about the already vulnerable populations of brown and black people. And now we see these protests sweeping our country and we see people in close contact with one another, some of them not wearing masks. There is a new study, though, out that shed some more light on how we can protect ourselves, even in this current environment of protest. Exactly, Amy. And we've spoken before about how important it is to individualize preventative measures. Um, So this study, very, very timely. Let's do a deep dive first on what we know about COVID-19. We know this is an easily transmissible respiratory virus. According to the CDC, 35 or even 40 percent of cases may show no symptoms. They may be asymptomatic, and about 80% of cases overall produce mild disease. That doesn't mean that these people don't feel sick. It just means they don't require hospitalization. And a new study suggesting some more insights in how we can reduce the risk of becoming infected. Right. This study just came out in The Lancet last night, 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, um, and really was a compilation, the largest to date of all the existing evidence. It showed that face masks distance and eye protection gave the best chance at reducing the risk of infection. Mm -hmm. We have to qualify chance. And that for every three feet apart, they found three feet apart between people, they found that the risk of infection was basically halved. So that is significant. More distance is better. They also found with respect to eye protection, 6% risk for people who covered their eyes, either with a face shield or with glasses or with goggles, versus 16% risk of infection for those who didn't protect their eyes. So I expect we'll hear more about that in the future. And then multi-layer masks or face coverings were thought to be more protective, protective, because remember we talked about protecting others, but protective for the person wearing Mm. them as well as reducing the risk of spread than those single layer masks, which are often those 
DIY home version. And there's still so much to learn right now. What do we still need to figure out? Right. And we have to qualify that Lancet study. This is what is considered the best available evidence right now, but that doesn't mean it's all such high quality evidence. So we still need to figure out what the infectious dose of COVID-19 is. We've talked about that before. That means how many particles you need to be exposed to to actually get sick. We don't know whether asymptomatic cases are less likely to spread the virus than symptomatic ones. Again, we still have to really research that. And we ultimately need to learn how effective those face coverings are at protecting and reducing spread. We need a number there. We can't just say this makes sense or why not. And then lastly, face masks, eye protection. They stated in this Lancet study, this is low certainty evidence right now. So the verdict is still out. They think it helps. But we haven't heard the last of this yet. All right, Dr. Jen, we will check back in with you a little later in the show. Thank you. While many peaceful daytime demonstrations around the country turned to riots and looting last night, protests in the city of Montgomery, Alabama, remained calm. Joining us now to discuss this is the mayor of Montgomery, Stephen Reed. Mayor Reed, thanks for being with us. And yesterday, we know you called for calm in your city and you asked for your residents to follow a 10 p.m. curfew. It looks like they listened. How is your city doing today? Our city is doing uh, fairly well. You know, I think that uh, people are still upset. They're still frustrated uh, with the murder and the killing of George Floyd and what's happened in other cities. Uh, They're certainly not feeling positive about where things go and they're feeling uncertain. But that being said, I think being in the birthplace of the civil rights movement, we understand uh, what protests can do and ultimately what protests is designed to impact, and that is to bring about change in policy and change in laws. And that's what our protesters here have been doing, and that's what they focus on with a peaceful and purposeful approach. And yesterday, Mayor, you spoke in front of a school named after a civil rights leader who played a major role uh, in the Montgomery bus boycott. And yet you also have a school named after Robert E. Lee, the leader of the Confederate Army. As the city's first black mayor, how do you set a course for the future? Well, E.D. Nixon uh, called Montgomery the pilot light for the nation. He was marching on City Hall in the 40s uh, before uh, becoming treasurer of the Montgomery Improvement Association, which was led by a 26-year-old pastor named uh, Martin Luther King Jr. So we try to focus on uh, where things were then and certainly where we can go from here Uh, in this new future that we want to capture in Montgomery. And when you think about uh, high school being named after a Confederate general uh, from Virginia to Texas, you have these Confederate monuments that's still up. I think now is the time to reevaluate whether or not they still serve, uh, whether or not they're still relevant. They never really served a purpose other than to uh, be in opposite position of the federal government and the laws that came after Brown versus Board of Education. So what we want to focus on is how can we be constructive in this tragedy? How can we take the memory of George Floyd and the anger and the energy that exists among so many people who feel disconnected from the opportunities of America and put that into policy? Because ultimately, that's what the protesters want us to do. They don't want to see symbolic change. They want to see substantive change. They want to see systemic change. And we have to meet them where they are as leaders in my position, whether that's in criminal justice reform or whether that's an economic opportunity or healthcare access uh, and the educational divide. We have to do better as leaders. We have failed this generation. We have failed many uh, communities of color 
And this country, in many ways, is still failing black people in a way that it should not be. Well, under your leadership, we are really excited about seeing what comes next for your city. I know in the meantime, though, unfortunately, you've seen a rise there in Alabama since restrictions have been eased in COVID-19 cases. How concerned are you that the protests are putting people in Montgomery at greater risk of now contracting coronavirus? Well, after almost a 400 percent case increase between April and May, I'm very concerned about that because I realize uh, the black community is disproportionately impacted by the COVID-19 virus. And again, it it, uh, shows our divide when it comes to healthcare access. And so it is very problematic for me uh, to think about where this may put our healthcare system down the road and who may be uh, adversely impacted by this. But I certainly understand our protesters want to get their message heard. They are yelling and they're screaming for our attention. They're doing it while wearing masks. I will uh, point that out. But nonetheless, we have to be concerned about the long term view of this and make sure that we are doing everything we can to hear them right now and to do everything in our power to adjust this system where it is so that we aren't talking about two pandemics, one regarding racial bias and prejudice, as well as COVID-19 in another six months. And I know that you have a proposal you are going to make to the city council regarding face masks. And, and, and it is interesting. You mentioned that Montgomery's situation last week was dire with just one intensive care unit bed left for patients. Can you give us a sense where Montgomery stands now in terms of the, the aid it's able to provide? We have seen some marginal improvement in that. We've been hovering around 4 percent. But as of uh, the last numbers we had, we've been around 8% for about the last 24 to 48 hours. So we are seeing uh, capacity, although we're seeing still increasing numbers of COVID cases coming into our hospital. So we want to make sure that we are doing everything we can to keep everyone safe, to provide masks where we can, and encourage people to wear masks um, where they can. The politics of mask wearing, unfortunately, I think is clouding the message Uh, that we're trying to get out. And so we'll see how that goes with the city council tonight. But mainly, we want to make sure that people are staying healthy and that they're staying safe because we want to make sure that we are choosing the health over this community as opposed to the wealth of this community. And we have to do that through our leadership and we have to do that through the example that we can set. We thank you for your tireless efforts in protecting your community. Montgomery Mayor Stephen Reed, we wish you the very best. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Well, there is much more ahead right here on What You Need to Know. Anchors away again. The Cruise Line CEO getting ready to put passengers back on the water. The new safety plan. Plus tips on building resilience in ourselves and our families. And then strategies for coping in these tough times. Plus, the B&B owners joining others across the country putting out the welcome mat. The new safety protocols in place as they welcome guests once again. Welcome back. American Cruise Lines has announced they will be the first cruise operator in the country to get its vessels back on the water since the coronavirus outbreak. Here to tell us more on that is CEO and president of American Cruise Lines, Charles Robertson. Charles, thanks for being with us. And you're obviously weighing advantages and risks of getting back to business. So how did you come to that decision to reopen? Thank you for having me on the show, Amy. It really started with who we are. We're the largest domestic cruise line but we have small ships, about 100 passengers, 
They're also new ships. We build them ourselves. And most importantly, we're American. We're an American business with all domestic routes. And so that gave us a really strong platform to start from. But we still knew that we had to take responsibility for our guests and give them the confidence to cruise again. So we put together a very detailed plan working with them and our ports and our travel advisors and published that plan right on the homepage of our website. And that's how we we knew that the support was really there when that started to get attention and a lot of support to get back out on the water. Give us a sense of what a cruise will look like now post-COVID-19, or at least in the middle of COVID-19. Right. It will still be a personalized sort of premium experience that our guests know, but there will be important differences. We've cut capacity of the ships. We've implemented a touchless boarding process. We've added isolation rooms just in case they're needed. We've added medical personnel on board. And it's really about sanitation on board and ashore so that all the touch points are sanitized hourly. Now, Charles, you know, so many industries have been adversely affected by this coronavirus, but the cruise industry specifically has had a very large share of bad press. Tell us how that's affected your company. It's true. It's been a long spring for everyone in the cruise industry, but we're still very proud to be part of the industry. And I think it's easy to overlook all the positives of the industry. Um, The major lines do a lot for the American economy, especially supporting the travel agency networks that we rely on, too. So as much as bookings went down, cancellations went up, we've seen it come back in a really strong way, especially since we've rolled out this plan. And Charles, anyone who's thinking about and and wants to get back on a cruise ship, but may be concerned or, or truly just afraid to get back into one of those ships, what do you say to them? To to learn about what we're doing. Each of the lines has its advantages and is really focused on responsible operation. And so if you take a moment to review our plan, I think it will be very difficult to say that it's not comprehensive and detailed in in its nature. All right. Well, we are certainly wishing you the very best. Charles Robertson, thank you for being with us today and best of luck. Thank you very much. We have Dr. Jen Ashton here in the house, and we've been talking about coronavirus since January, really, before it became a bigger concern, obviously, in March. But back in those first few months, I remember on Good Morning America, you telling us that we did not need to wear masks, correct? Exactly. So let's go back to the evolution, because there is still so much confusion and heated emotion about this issue. Historically, there has never been a recommendation by the CDC that masks are protective for the person wearing them in a non-healthcare setting. So back in January, in February, as the CDC was saying, as our Surgeon General was saying, um, and I echoed it, there was no evidence to recommend that masks for the general public would protect the person wearing it. So what changed? April 3rd, the CDC reversed their policy, which was really surprising to a lot of people, and recommended face coverings for the general public because of new evidence that the coronavirus could be spread by asymptomatic people. So the principle has not changed. The principle is still that the person wearing the mask could be sick or infected. And so wearing a mask protects you if I'm wearing it. We don't yet have any information that it protects the person wearing it. It may, 
right? And in science, we always reassess and relearn and we have the ability to adapt and pivot and say, guess what? We learned something new. Now we're changing. But there's still so much confusion about so this, much Amy. confusion. I, it's, it's fair to say a lot of people believe by putting on the mask they're protecting themselves. Right. And that's understandable. But again, now 15 states have made face coverings or masks mandatory. And we, time will tell whether it protects the person wearing it. But it does appear that it slows the transmission or the spread of this virus. Should we expect an uptick in positive cases following the large protests? Well, that's obviously the concern, Amy. I mean, we're talking about at baseline a population of black and brown people that have been known to be hit disproportionately hard by this virus and this disease. We also know that 35 to 40 percent of people infected can show no symptoms at all. And with close contact, prolonged contact, loud yelling, singing, talking, uh, there is obviously a ripe environment for transmission of this virus. So remember the latency period, 14 day incubation, average symptoms occur on day five. So that's when we'll be hopefully, you know, not seeing cases. But that's the time period we need to look out for. Yeah, we will be watching for that. Next question, as so many businesses reopen, can ventilation systems in stores filter the virus? Well, that's an interesting question. It depends, right? Because we know that, for example, the HEPA filters on a lot of commercial airplanes filter 99% of particles above a certain size. So it is possible that certain commercial environments and HVAC systems can have similar HEPA filters in place. But right now, are they ready to go? Maybe not. They also are expensive, and we haven't studied this yet. So again, theoretically, sure, it's possible, but we don't have the hard data yet. All right, more questions about our new normal. This one, as restaurants reopen, what safety measures should staff observe if face-to-face with customers? Well, I like this question because it refocuses on the restaurant workers who are vulnerable, right? They have prolonged contact. It goes back to those four important elements. Time of exposure, 15 minutes, is thought to increase risk. Place, are you indoors or outdoors? Outdoor ventilation thought to be much safer, much lower risk than indoor where there's poor ventilation. How many people, what's the density of people in that area? Most restaurants in prior days were densely packed. And how much space is between that food worker or restaurant worker and their customers? Again, the more space apart, the better. It's hard to take an order from six or more feet away. But um, that face covering, gloves, all of those things will help. All right. And then how accurate are the reports out of Italy that coronavirus is losing its potency? This was a really important question, Amy, because this headline got a lot of attention. And this was a perfect example of the data was not there yet. First of all, in this short period of time, viruses don't lose their potency. The Italy numbers and case counts are trending down in part because of their aggressive social distancing and lockdown measures, which were appropriate after their huge numbers of cases and deaths. Um, But this study, which was not yet peer-reviewed and not yet published in peer-reviewed journal or site, really was about viral load, how much virus they were detecting. That's not an indication that a virus is losing potency. There are a lot of other factors that go into that. So this was I'm I'm glad this person sent in this question. It was a really important one this week. All right, Dr. Jen, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. And you can submit your questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Well, moving on to the mass disruptions becoming unfortunately more frequent than ever right now. Our country facing civil conflict and new strains of disease. So it seems 
Resilience is a requirement now these days for surviving the turbulence of the 21st century, or at least 2020. Here to talk about resilience with us is psychologist and author of The Resilience Dividend, Being Strong in a World Where Things Go Wrong, Dr. Judith Roden. Thanks so much for being with us. And wow, I don't think we've ever needed your words of wisdom more than ever before. You've said crisis is the new normal. That's a very overwhelming thing to think about. How do we deal with that? Well, thanks so much, Amy and Jen, for having me. Think about it this way. I I would say not a month has gone by um, in this century without something frightening erupting, whether it's floods or hurricanes, wildfires, tornadoes, as well as economic shocks, and now pandemics, social unrest and violence. All of these things are happening with greater frequency, and they are creating crises. And Judy, I've used your book as a Bible so often throughout this pandemic, but you've said resilience isn't something you're born with, but it's a skill you learn. What do you mean by that? Well, luckily, Jen, resilience isn't a personality variable. Often when it's talked about, it sounds like it's something you either have or you don't have um, from birth. It's a skill. You can learn it and, and therefore you have to practice it. And if you do, if you build resilience, that it enables you to rebound more effectively when crisis hits. And interestingly, the data have shown it even develops the capacity to grow and transform more effectively as a result. So we should be building these capacities for ourselves, for our families, our communities, the institutions we care about, because they enable us to handle a crisis better. And they also work in the good times. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of growing to do here. I know that. And you've said that there's a difference between slow burning stresses versus a crisis. So how do you prepare for those two differently? Well, they start very differently. So a crisis appears suddenly. It needs a rapid set of responses in the moment. Slow burning stresses build slowly, um, like drought or air pollution or inequality Um, They build over a long period of time and suddenly a set of events triggers them because they've been so long in the making. But you actually prepare for them in the same way. And Judy, as the nation is coming out of lockdown and dealing with really, in effect, two crises simultaneously, um, a medical and a societal one, what tips would you give for building personal resilience as individuals? Well, there are four primary characteristics. Awareness is the first. And so in the post-lockdown period, and you talked about this a bit, Jen, in your question and answer, you have to watch, monitor the environment. You have to track the data. You know, you really, really have to become aware um, because some places are safer than others. The impact of the exposure is additive. So those are very important things to be aware of. Diversity is the second. You need to construct a set of options to get what you need or where you need to go. You need to think it through and develop it in advance. That's why experts do scenario planning. So you're not forced into one place or to using one solution at the time. The third is adaptability. You have to remain alert as you come out of this, be nimble and flexible, be willing and be able to change course quickly when things go wrong or where circumstances make you concerned. And the fourth may surprise people, but we call it safe failure. 
Um, you can't control everything, but you actually can build and use the capacity to fail safely rather than catastrophically by preparing in advance. Um, and so you need to quickly separate what's creating the problem from other parts of the situation. And that you can do. So as we come out of lockdown, this is going to influence not only our own personal safety, but how and if the virus continues to spread. And Judy, I mean, we could talk to you for an hour. One one last question. You wear a lot of hats. You're a mom, grandmother, psychologist. You were also the president of the University of Pennsylvania, the first woman president of an Ivy League university, I might add. So I have a college student. What advice would you have if you were still running a college and, or university for handling how to handle the pandemic right now and possibly bring those students back to campus? I think universities are thinking so deeply about this. And as parents, we should feel grateful um, for the time and energy that, that is being spent on this. So it really will be, how do you feed our students safely and how do you house them safely? Not only what activity in and out of the classroom will look like. I think there'll be obviously so much more spacing, hygiene, much more sanitation, um, but it's going to be up to our, our kids, the students, to be willing to follow what are going to feel like very onerous regulations in some cases and antithetical to the reason for many of them that you go to a residential college. So very tough times ahead, I think. Well, with your guidance, they're a little bit better. <laughs> Thank you so much Thank for your you. time and for your words, Dr. Roden. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Now, the entrepreneurial couple reopening the doors of their B&B on the water in Michigan, navigating the new realities in hospitality. I am uh, Wilfredo Hackes, here my lovely wife, Randy Hackes. We own and operate South Lupin here in San Joseph, Michigan. We've owned the bed and breakfast for about three years, and it's located here right over uh, in St. Joseph, Michigan, looking over Lake Michigan. We started looking at houses and we ran into the bed and breakfast and we said, okay, well, this could be a great opportunity to be entrepreneurs. And my husband has over 10 years background in hospitality. So we thought, what a great way for him to have a new job coming to America. This really became a dream of both of ours. We really get a lot of special stories and guests that come through that. So the St. Joseph community is incredibly important to our business and being a bed and breakfast. The pandemic, when it hit, it stopped us in our tracks. So we literally have been closed for two months, not only because people were traveling less, but also for our own safety. We have to be well and our place has to be clean in order to um, host people. So we didn't want to take the risk. So we spent basically a couple months just uh, doing projects around the house and prepping for our return. What we're really focused on is first cleanliness. We'll be wearing masks, uh, we'll be wearing gloves as he cooks, and we'll ask guests in common area to also wear their mask. But I would say probably the biggest thing that's changing in service, which may be something that folks even prefer, is they will now be getting breakfast in bed. Sadly, uh, right now, we're at zero. So, you know, it's only up from here. Positive. This might be just temporary. So 
while the world does look different, I think everybody coming together and relying on your community is really, really important. Please support your local businesses and your small businesses. We're not here to be rich. We're here because we're passionate about what we do. And we support you, Wilfredo and Brandy, wishing you the best. And we turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for her final thoughts. So, Amy, I want to continue the theme this week about a prescription, really, for our physical resilience. We've heard so much about other types of resilience. So today I want to focus on nutrition, our food, our fuel. And I got a degree in nutrition because so often doctors traditionally neglect food. And as the saying goes, food can be thy medicine. Uh, So something that people can do today, whether they're eating less because of stress or food insecurity, or they're eating more or eating the wrong things, start today. Just focus on added sugars. The recommendations, maximum added sugar for women, 25 grams a day. For men, 37 grams a day. Just turn those packages around. Look at that sugar content. I promise people if they cut their added sugars, they will start to feel better very quickly. Yeah, physically and mentally for in sure. every way. Yeah, Couldn't so agree more. Dr. Something Jen. they can do today. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.